Wonderful to see you this beautiful day. Some of you are smiling and happy, and you actually got some sleep. Some of you look a little drowsy. One of you was speaking of how beautiful the sunset was this morning, and I knew you needed more sleep. As we, uh, as we begin our time and come to God's Word, uh, let's, let's go to our God and, and, and just thank Him and, and, um, and lift our hearts in prayer. Uh, as we do so, I'd like to encourage us to pray for little Miss Wren this morning. Uh, we uh, continue to lift up our missionaries from time to time and highlight the work that they're doing, but the, um, the Longs in Thailand have, uh, have been asking us to be praying for little Wren. She's been going through chemotherapy, and she's, uh, what, 10 years old, 8 years old? Um, but she's been in and out of the hospital for this last year, and the Longs have been spending a lot of time personally caring for, for her. Um, Haley, I'm getting some feedback behind me on the monitors. Uh, but if we'd be praying for, for Wren, uh, she is having a blood test this week, and they're going to be going back down to the hospital, and then determine the, the uh, blood test will determine whether she has to go in for more treatments and another round, or uh, if she'll be able to go home. And so let's just pray for her this morning as we turn our hearts to the Lord. Father, we, we thank you for the work that you are doing here in DeWitt, throughout Iowa, across this country, and around the globe. You are a God who, who um, is sovereign and, and providential. You oversee every change in our lives. There's nothing that happens without your notice. There's no pain and trials that come into our, across our path that, that you haven't seen coming. And you care. And when we hurt, uh, you, you care for us. And so we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you that, um, that we can rely on you and that we can come and lift our, our requests be- before you. This morning we specifically pray for little Wren. Uh, she's um, gone through so much this last year and we know that you love her more than, than any of us ever could. She's in your care and no matter what happens, uh, this is... Um, this is something that, um, that you've put there and allowed to come into her life um, so that you would be, the, the glory would be brought to you and the people would come to know you. And so I pray that this would be an opportunity for the Gospel to go forth. I pray that this would be an opportunity that the Longs would be able to share the good news uh, to, to those that are around them. That Lynn, that little Lynn would, would, uh, would grow and that uh, she would um, draw near to you. Please use this. Uh, these trials that look like they're so horrible for something that could be beyond our wildest dreams of something that's good. Father, we also come before You and we pray for this time as we turn to Your Word. I pray that You would teach us. I pray that You would help us to, to understand what You have written here in Your Word. And that we wouldn't just understand the meaning of these words, but that we would understand how they impact each one of us. What these words say not only about a, a church that existed 2,000 years ago, but that we would understand what these words say about our church and what they say about our hearts as individuals. Help us to live these principles out, that we would discover these truths, and our lives would be changed as a result of what we read here today. Please guide us as we turn to Your Word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, one of my favorite traditions growing up was Christmas Eve at Uncle Denny and Karen's. Every year it meant giant trees covered in tinsel. It meant presents under the tree. It meant family. It meant friends. It meant um, 
a great feast that was laid out for, for everyone, and we ate to our heart's content before we went down and we opened all the presents as cousins. Uh, I loved Christmas Eve at Denny's, but one of the things that, that uh, frightened me to death as a child was the downstairs bathroom. Back, hidden in the corner of the basement, behind the laundry room, behind the giant fish tank, was this, um, was this bathroom with... Uh, a, a door that was heavy and would not open and close. Uh, well, it would, but then you couldn't get it open and closed again, especially when you're eight years old and you're trying to get out. The door itself was made out of barn wood, and the latch was this giant steel lock that, that set in place. And I remember one Christmas Eve, while everybody was eating dinner, I was locked in this downstairs basement bathroom couldn't get out. And I was knocking on the door and pounding on the door, and the door wouldn't open. And... I was scared of basements for many years after that. Still am. Um, Fast forward several years, I came to DeWitt, and uh, one of my first Sundays here at DeWitt Evangelical Free Church, I I arrived on Sunday morning thinking that I had the keys that I needed. Um, I had been given a key to the church, and I figured, well, this will open any door. I can get into my office, I can get into the closets, I can get in from outside. What I didn't know was that this key... It's for the front door, but it in no way will unlock my office. And so I got here Sunday morning with all my sermon material, everything that I needed for Sunday morning, and my office door was locked tight. And I was thinking, how am I going to get that? We're going to have to take the hinges off. I wasn't supposed to lock this door. And I think either Doug or Keith came to my rescue and said, oh, well, there's a specific key to get in there. But, but the problem was is that I was shut out. And everything that I needed for Sunday morning that I needed to prepare for... Um, was where I couldn't get to. And there was a, an object that was in the way, a large wooden door. You know, as we turn to the sixth of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, we come to the church of Philadelphia. And the Philadelphians were a church that understood what it meant to have an open door or a closed door that they couldn't get through. In Philadelphia, the sixth of the seven cities in Revelation, uh, the name itself means, does anybody know what Philadelphia means? Help me out on this one brotherly love. Uh, in, it's, that's what it means in Greek, which is why Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is nicknamed also the city of brotherly love. Uh, it was built in a valley along the main trade route of the Roman Empire. It was um, sat on a plateau about, um, that was, um, uh, excuse me, sat underneath a plateau which rose a thousand feet above it. Uh, Philadelphia laid on the best path that went by this, and, and, uh, and it went through uh, Philadelphia, and if you want to get to any part of Asia Minor, if you want to get to any of these other cities that we're talking about, from one part of the ancient world to the other, you had to go through Philadelphia. Philadelphia, in essence, was the door that you had to pass through to get to the rest of, of um, the other cities in Asia Minor, and even beyond that into, into Europe. The highway was the main imperial post road. postal road. It was also a key line for communication and information. And so needless to say, it was strategically located where, where people would pass through. It wasn't a fortress. We saw last week the church, the church of Smyrna and how this city was, was built as a fortress on a hill. It was a, a natural defense. And Philadelphia was not that. But it was built on a wide hill that sloped up from the river valley toward the mountain with this central plateau on the opposite side. And so it was easy to defend because of the lay of the land. And, uh, and it laid on a road that was the door for the rest of the country. Unfortunately, though, uh, the city was also very close to a fault line. 
It, uh, it suffered from the effects of earthquakes, frequent volcanic eruptions. Uh, and in A.D. 17, when, when Jesus was just a young man, uh, the city of Philadelphia, it, it suffered an unprecedented earthquake that put the city in the history books. The city was devastated, but it wasn't the earthquake itself that caused most of the damage. It was the aftershocks. Over the next several years, the aftershocks did more damage to the city of Philadelphia than, than the, actual, uh, the actual first earthquake itself. And so with these constant, earth, these constant earthquakes and aftershocks coming, uh, the city was just destroyed over these years. And, and they had um, still, by the time the book of Revelation was written, the city had, had not fully recovered. They were still rebuilding uh, over almost a century later after the first earthquake. And so with these constant aftershocks, many people had left the city and they were dwelling outside. They constantly lived in fear. And so anytime an earthquake would come, the people would move out of their houses, they would move outside the city walls, and they would live in huts, tents, temporary dwellings, risking the elements, risking open battle. And they would, uh, they would live in these temporary shelters, waiting out the aftershocks. Those that remained inside Philadelphia, they, they had to find constant ways of, of refortifying their buildings and supporting their own buildings. But you know, like the doors that held me on the other side and, and wouldn't let me through, the people of Philadelphia were used to being shut out of their own homes. They were used to living in a place where they, the door was shut for them to go back to, their, back to their city because of what was happening around them, because of the movement of the earth right beneath their feet. And it was the church of, of this city of Philadelphia that Jesus writes the sixth letter of Revelation to. And, and here we learn four critical truths regarding the identity of our Messiah, Jesus Himself. Well, let's turn to the text itself and read Revelation chapter 7, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I've asked Bruce Floyd if he would come and read the text for us today. Please turn to your Bibles. Follow along if you would, please. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of God. Thank you, Bruce. Again, there are four critical truths about the identity of our Messiah, Jesus, that we find here. The first of these critical truths that we discover is in the second section of the letter. Uh, We've looked at who Jesus is writing to, but Jesus also then says, these are the words of, thus says the Lord. And in each of these passages, Jesus describes himself in terms that are pertinent to that church that, that will change the way that they see him, that will change their behavior. Jesus says these are the words of him, and he introduces himself as the Messiah who is God himself. God himself came, and he became the Messiah that was promised. And Jesus describes himself as the Messiah, but he describes himself in three ways to the church of Philadelphia. Jesus first says these are the words of the Holy One. He describes himself as holy. You know, as we talk about holiness, uh, sometimes that's a, a phrase that, that's beyond uh, what we understand sometimes just because we throw it around so many so often. Uh, the word holiness, it comes from the same, the same Greek word as to be sanctified, um, to be a saint. Oftentimes you'll hear me refer to you as, I'll say, dear saints. I, in past people have thought, well, in order to be a saint, you have to do a few things. You have to perform miracles. Uh, you have to be dead for a couple hundred years. And um, you have to be really famous or, or have done something marvelous. But that's not what the Bible says a saint is. A saint is someone who has been declared holy by our God. You are righteous ones. And so God has declared you to be a saint, one who is sanctified. But the reason that we are able to be sanctified, that we are able to be holy ones, is because our God is a holy God. The concept of holiness means that God is is completely other than we are. He's He's beyond us, and He is completely separate from sin itself. There's nothing in Him that is unholy. There's nothing in Him that is impure and unrighteous. He is perfect. And and because He is perfect and because He is holy, He has called us also to be holy. Now there's two ways that holiness comes about. First of all, uh, we are holy because of the position that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, Because we are in Christ, He has made us holy. He has set us apart for His purpose. For His purposes. And then as Christians, He calls us then to walk in obedience. And so He commands us, not only are we positionally holy, not only are we holy because of who He has made us, but He also commands us, be holy because I am holy. And so there's this process as we work out our salvation that we would walk with Him, that we would walk in obedience, and that we would... Um, that we would imitate the holiness that is His. All, all that begins by the fact that our God Himself is the Holy One. Jesus declares to the church of Philadelphia, I am the Holy One. He also says He's the true One. He says, I, I'm true. I'm genuine. I'm the, I'm the true Messiah. And there were a lot of people in, in the world around Jesus that had claimed to be Messiahs, but Jesus says, I, I'm the, the true One. I'm the only Messiah. And there were a lot of people who had claimed to be true worshipers of God. And Jesus proclaims Himself genuine and, and trustworthy. In, in a world that asks, what, what is truth? Jesus remains the way, the truth, and the life. And because He is true, 
Because He is holy, the church of Philadelphia needed to understand that they could rely on Him. They could depend on Him. They could trust Him. And as a result of Him being holy and calling us to be holy, we are called to walk in obedience. But Jesus also is the Messiah. He goes on, He says, I'm the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And it seems that in the church of Philadelphia, there was a group of, of Jews that were connected to the church who um, probably claimed that they alone had the entrance to the kingdom of God. They um, probably weren't members of the church, but were, were connected and, and knew the, the believers there at the church. Um, but they couldn't understand how God would give access to the kingdom to this group of Gentiles. Surely, certainly, these Gentile Christians couldn't have the way. They couldn't have know how to gain access to God's kingdom. But, but Jesus comes to the church of Philadelphia and He assures them, and He says to them, look, I am the one with the key of David. Jesus assures them that He would be the one who would sit on the throne of David to fulfill the promises that God had made to that king thousands of years before. But the imagery that, that Jesus uses here where He talks about the key of David and opening and shutting, it actually comes from a different passage in the Old Testament. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, uh, we read the account of a steward to the king named Shevna. And Shevna was a, um, a man who served the king, but his responsible, his, excuse me, his responsibility was to prevent anyone from coming to the king that shouldn't have access to the king and open the door for anyone that should be able to come into the king. Today we would call this the chief of staff. If I wanted to go into the White House and have a conversation with the president, uh, you all know that I can't just walk into the White House and, and say, you know, hey dude, what's up? Let's talk. First of all, I'd get tackled by a lot of Secret Service, uh, but then I'd also get stopped at a door to the Oval Office, and if I made it that far, I would have to go through the Chief of Staff, and that Chief of Staff would determine whether I can go into the Oval Office and have that conversation with the President of the United States or not. Same thing with Shevna. Shevna would control access to the king, and if you wanted to get to the king, if you wanted to make a request or have a conversation or have your case heard, you would have to go through Shevna, and the problem was is Shevna was using his office for personal gain. He was... He was um, serving his own interests, and rather than controlling the city uh, that was designated to him, he was controlling things to benefit himself. And so in, Re in Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 17, the Lord speaks to Shevna and He says, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and will whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. And so God declares this judgment on this, this individual who is using the office of the steward of the king for his own personal profit. And in his place, God says, I'm going to take somebody else, and I'm going to give that position of the steward of the king, the one who holds the key of David, I'm going to give that to a man named Eliakim. Now, if, if you know the story of Elkim at all, uh, you, you probably don't know much about him because he's just mentioned a couple times, but his family is going to be very important in, in the next few years after Isaiah writes his prophecy. In fact, if you've ever heard of three guys named Shaphan, Ahikam, and Gedaliah, three of my favorite characters in the Bible, 
next time you read Jeremiah, look for those three men and watch this family of Eliakim, and you'll see what an amazing impact those three individuals and their father Eliakim made on those kings of Judah and on Jeremiah the prophet and the people of that time. Normally we read through some of those books and we just skip over those names, but this, this family became incredibly important during that time. And it started with Eliakim, who was given that position of steward to replace, to replace the Shevna, who had used it for his own purposes. And so in Isaiah, he goes on in verse 20, he says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And don't miss verse 22. He will open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? And so Jesus uses this imagery from this passage in which he's talking about the steward of the king. Direct access to the king himself. And in essence, Jesus says of Himself, He says, look, I'm the one who has the key of David. I am the one that controls access to the King. Not only am I the Messiah Himself, but I am the one who controls access to God the Father. And so applying these same words to Himself, Jesus calls Himself the one who holds the key of David. He controls access to our Heavenly Father just as Eliakim controlled access to the King. And just as, in fact, Philadelphia controlled access to the other cities in Asia Minor in a way that they kind of echoed this in their own personal lives. But the incredible part about the Gospel of the Kingdom is that it has been opened up to us. Gentiles. About every single one of us sitting in this room if, if, if it wasn't for Jesus opening up the kingdom for those of us who are not Jews, uh, we, we wouldn't have ever read this Bible. We wouldn't have ever heard the Gospel. It would be something that would be beyond us because it was being preached to the Jews only. And, and Jesus says, I have the keys to the kingdom. And, and Philadelphia, you've been told that, that you can't have access to the Gospel. You can't have access to the Kingdom. You have this group of Jews that are living there in Philadelphia with you saying, you can't have eternal life because that belongs to us. And Jesus says, no, no. I'm the one with the key of David. I'm the one that provides access to the Gospel. It's been opened up to you. Jesus opens and nobody can shut the door on them. Jesus shuts and no one can open. In the next section in which Jesus declares how He knows the church, we discover the second critical truth about the identity of our Messiah. We have a Messiah who knows His faithful ones. Starting in verse 8, again He says, I know your works. This is the section where Jesus says, I know you. I understand you. I see you. I know what you're going through. I know the struggles that you face. I know the temptations that you have. I know the successes that that you celebrate. In the church of Philadelphia, uh, it receives nothing but good praise. In fact, unlike the four of the previous letters that we've read so far, the Church of Philadelphia uh, is um, is not rebuked. There's there's no correction given to the Philadelphians. Everything that Jesus has to say and notes here in this passage is about how they've been faithful, even though they had little strength. Again, Jesus shows that they have they have an open door that no one can shut. A, a bit earlier than all the other churches, Jesus shares what their reward is. And He guarantees that they will not be shut out. You see, the church of Philadelphia was, was a church that uh, it was probably small. He says you have little strength. 
It doesn't mean that that he's not criticizing them when he says that. He's just noting that the the Philadelphia, it was probably a small church that had a very limited impact on their community and a limited impact on their world. And there were those that would come to the church of Philadelphia, maybe an older uh, church that didn't have a lot of young people in it. And he says, they would say to the church of Philadelphia, what impact can you make on this world? Not much. You know, you you think you're going to, you're something? Well, you're, you're not. We, we don't think that God's going to use you for any great purposes. And Jesus says, I want you to think about things differently. Because I'm the one who opens the door. And I'm telling you, Philadelphians, I have opportunities for you that no one is going to be able to take away from you. So I'm the one who's going to open the door for you and provide things that you can do for My glory that from human, a human perspective, people would go, what, what can they possibly do? And so Jesus shows that they have an open door that no one can shut. And a bit earlier than all the other churches, Jesus shares what their reward is. And He guarantees that they will not be shut out. This is the reward for their faithfulness. Extra reassurance. You see, in a city where the people were used to being shut out of their homes by disaster and danger, when there were earthquakes and people had to run from their own homes, uh, Jesus... Jesus says to this, this church, there's an open door for you. And I think part of that is He's saying that the kingdom is open to you. Even though you are Gentiles, you are welcome into the kingdom of God and I'm the one that opens that up for you and no one can shut you out of that. But also, I think He's saying to this church, there's an open door to ministry here. And in verse 9, He speaks of this synagogue of Satan. They were, they were, he says they're, they're Jews by heritage. Here's this group of Jewish people. That, that followed the customs of the Jewish people. They followed the religion of the Jewish people. But Jesus, Jesus notes these, these individuals and He says, look, it, it's all a lie. They, they don't belong to God. The, this particular group of Jews that were living in Philadelphia. And they were, these particular Jews were not God's people because they were not true believers. And part of what was happening in, in the Jewish world and in the Roman world during that time is there was a group that was called the Judaizers. They were Jewish by heritage, but they were connecting themselves to the churches throughout Asia Minor and throughout Europe. And they were coming along saying, look, the, the thing is, if, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to follow God, then okay, yeah, you need Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. We all know that. That's great. But you also need something else. And so they were preaching in all these churches that, that uh, to the Gentiles, if you really want to be a true believer, then you have to follow Jewish customs. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Jewish law. And, um, and so they were coming around. They were teaching a false gospel in which they were adding to what Jesus had already done by dying on the cross for our sins. It's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus works. It's Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus plus communion. It's Jesus plus being a good person and a good husband and a good wife. Jesus Himself, you know, that's great. You died on the cross, but you're going to need all these other things in order to make sure that you get in. And that's the false gospel that these people were preaching there in Philadelphia and throughout, throughout the world. And, and Jesus comes along and He says, no, it, it's Me only. I died for you on the cross and I'm the one who has given you access to the throne of God because I took your place on the cross. And so these Judaizers were coming along and telling the church of Philadelphia that it was through them or through following the law and the law of the Old Testament that you could get in. But you know, God has a way of turning things around and upside down. 
And, and what he does next is he, he refers again to Isaiah and quotes from passages in Isaiah 43-60. to In fact, in those chapters, uh, Isaiah spoke of the Gentiles one day coming to the Jews. And in a few different places, he talks about how the Gentiles would one day be blessed by the Jewish nation. And, and from around the world, people will come to Israel and they will bless God and they will praise God. Specifically in chapter 45, verse 14, these Gentiles would acknowledge and say, surely God is in you and there is no other. No God besides Him. Gentiles from around the world would come to the Jews and recognize that their God is the true God. And in that passage, it talks about how they will bow down in, in submission. Not, not worshiping the Jews, but they would bow down in submission and recognize that the Jewish people had the way. The Jewish people knew the true God. And so Gentiles who had once been closed off would now come and say, we want to follow Him and we submit to Him and recognize that He has blessed you. But here in Revelation, Jesus turns the tables, doesn't He? In the passage that we're looking at, these Christians were being persecuted by unbelieving Jews living in Philadelphia. But in this case, it was going to be the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, who would be converted as a result of the Gentiles' faithfulness. And they would receive salvation because they recognized that God is in these Gentiles. You see, in this case, it was going to be the Jewish people in that community that would come to these Philadelphian believers and would bow down, not, again, not in worship, but to say, we submit to your God because you Gentiles, you know the way. You know the truth. And we need Jesus. The tables have been turned from what God prophesied in the Old Testament, and now the opposite was happening where the Gentiles were leading the Jews to Christ. My friends, there, there are some of you here today that are a lot like the church of Philadelphia. You look at your own personal life, your own personal opportunities, and, and you listen to what other people tell you, and you say to yourself, and you hear them say, what, what good are you? What can you do? You don't have these great talents that other Christians have. You don't have these great gifts that, that uh, you know, you're going to go out and change the world. You know, you're not a Billy Graham. What kind of impact do you think you can make? And you look at different things in your life, whether it's your abilities, your age, your inexperience. Maybe you're a new believer. And, 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 and the world says there's no opportunity for you. But Jesus comes along like He does to the church of Philadelphia and He says, don't give up. I, I have opened the door and, and I'm the one that provides the opportunities. You just be faithful. You take what I have given to you and you be faithful where I've put you. The church of Philadelphia was a small church in a community where people didn't think that anything of them. But God says, I'm going to open the door and provide what I want you to do. You be faithful in doing that. Don't ever give up on those around you. Don't ever give up on what God can do through you because of how great He is. My friends, we have a Messiah who knows His faithful ones. But there's a third critical truth about the identity of our Messiah which Jesus wants the Philadelphians to remember. And that's that we have a Messiah who is coming soon. Jesus continues as He describes their works and their reward. In verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so Jesus makes note of the Philadelphians' faithfulness. 
Particularly, he makes reference to the fact that, that they had kept his command to persevere. Last week, we looked at the church of, of Sardis. And we saw that in Sardis, uh, that there, there was a lot of compromise. There was a remnant of the church that had been faithful, but, but many were just going through the motions of Christianity. Some of these, I believe, were genuine believers who had fallen asleep on their watch and they hadn't, they'd become uh, comfortable where they were at. But, but as you'll find in most churches, there, there were many present and are many present in our churches today who also claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they were merely imitating the real thing. My friend, make sure that you are not one of those who are just pretending Christianity. If you truly belong to Jesus, the Bible teaches us that you are secure in Him and nothing can separate you from His love. But there will be many sitting in churches, sitting in our church today, who think that they're Christians because they're going through all the motions and they've been doing it for years. And in the end, they will be revealed as those who are actually without Christ. My friend, consider what it means to obey the Gospel. Do the gut-wrenching thing and ask yourself what your relationship is with sin. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Don't just keep coming to church and pretending, hoping that one day eternal life is going to be yours. The Bible commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that we work for our salvation or that we can ever contribute enough that God would save us based on our works. But what it does mean is that I would sit back and I would evaluate what do I really believe? Who am I in Christ? Am I truly a believer or am I just imitating what other people are doing? Make sure that you understand the good news of the Gospel and the truth of what Jesus did for you by dying on the cross. For those who are truly believers, there's a promise here. Jesus says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Make sure that you are in Christ and, and ask yourself, do I really, have I really believed or am I just going through all the motions? For the true believer, Jesus promises, I'm going to keep you from that hour of trial. Uh, and we won't have time uh, today. We, we could take an entire several months and discuss the rest of the book of Revelation. But as you look at uh, chapters 4 all the way to 21, we see this period that's described as what we call the, the tribulation period or a seven-year tribulation. Part of that time is known as the Great Tribulation. And Jesus describes that here and He talks about this, this time that is coming upon the world. And in, in summary, as we talk about this tribulation, there were basically two purposes for this seven-year tribulation that Revelation and Daniel and Thessalonians talk about. Two main reasons that God is going to bring this time onto the world. The first thing that God brings this seven-year tribulation about for is for the salvation of Israel. The main reason that this seven-year tribulation is going to take place is because God has a plan to save Israel. We've been talking about some of the Jews that were in Philadelphia that were specifically against Christ. But God still has a purpose for the Jewish people and He's not rejected the Jewish people. He still has a plan to redeem Israel. And in His plan of the ages, He intends to take this time to specifically save Israel and and by the end of that seven years, the nation of Israel is going to turn to their Messiah. They're going to look on the One whom they had pierced. And they are going to recognize that Jesus is their King. 
They're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And they admit it the first time. And they're going to be ready when He comes back again the second time. And as a nation, the nation is going to turn to Him and say, Jesus is the King. And that's the main purpose that God has given this period of tribulation. But the second purpose for that tribulation period, which Jesus alludes to right here, is that it's going to be a time of incredible judgment. For thousands of years, God has shown mercy and, and grace to a world that is at war with Him. And as you look around you, you see people just... We watch the things that people do, that the world does, and sometimes our minds are baffled by just how it doesn't make any sense. Why would, why would you go this direction? The main reason we do so is because this world is at war with God. They are at war with the truth. And there will come a point in one day when God says, enough. I've allowed and shown My grace on this world for so long and now the time has come and He's going to pour out His judgment. And it talks about in that seven years how God is going to pour out His judgments on the earth. There will be millions, I believe, who are going to come to Christ during that time. And so many will be saved. Jews and Gentiles. But this period of tribulation is a time of trial and tribulation that is a time of judgment. And so Jesus comes to the church of Philadelphia and He says, I'm going to exempt you from that time. I am coming soon. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. And He promises them that He's going to keep them from that time of tribulation. In other places, in Thessalonians, it also talks about how the church will be kept from that hour. There are those that would say that Jesus is going to keep the church through the time of tribulation and that He will he will preserve us through the tribulation and so we'll endure those seven years. But that's not what the text says here. And I believe firmly that, that what, part of the promise that He gives to the church of the Philadelphians and that He gives to true believers today is that we will not be a part of that period of the tribulation. But we also believe in what we call an event called the rapture in which Jesus is coming back for His people. And it could happen at any moment. In fact, Jesus promises here to the church of Philadelphia in verse 11, it's a reminder to us and the same promises for us. Jesus says, I am coming soon. He's coming. Hold fast to what you have. Be faithful. And He will reward you. In the next section, normally in all these letters, Jesus goes on. He says, I have this against you, however. I, I know your works, but, but we have some concerns here. There's some things that we need to work on. What's beautiful about the church of Philadelphia is there is none of that here. He, he has no criticisms of the church of Philadelphia. And so we're going to skip right over that section because all that Jesus has to say about the Philadelphians is encouragement and, and what they're doing well. And so he goes right to the next section where he says, to the one who conquers. The fourth critical truth about the identity of the Messiah which Jesus wants the Philadelphians to remember is this. We have a Messiah who, is, who gives security. Is gives security. That's the new grammar of today. It's kind of like new math. Just we're gonna, Sorry, bad grammar up there. We have a Messiah who gives security. Let's reread verses 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from the God of, out of heaven, and my own new name. There's a couple different kinds of promises that Jesus gives to the church of Philadelphia. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these are promises for you as well. You are a conqueror, not because you're going to perfectly follow all these commands. 
You are a conqueror, not because you hear the warnings in this book and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey those perfectly. I'm never going to mess up. You are not a conqueror for those reasons. You are a conqueror because Jesus is the true conqueror. He is the one who is the victor. And if you are in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in Him, then He declares that you are already a victor. And so these promises are given to you today as a motivation for godly obedience as we follow Him. The first promise that He tells the church of Philadelphia and that He tells to you that are believers is that He'll make you a pillar in the temple of God. Now why would pillars be important in a place like Philadelphia? You see, there were a lot of earthquakes. There were a lot of structures that, that fell and, and, and they continued to collapse. And so in Philadelphia, they, they really understood the importance of making a great pillar. Here you see one of the buildings in Philadelphia. You can see some of the other buildings behind it, but look at the pillars on that. I think this was one of the ancient churches there in Philadelphia. They're huge. They're a couple thousand years old almost, and they're still standing today because of their size and their strength and their structure. The genuine believer has a place in heaven with God that is permanent. Though everything else in this life crumbles away, the pillars will remain standing and those who have overcome sin by the blood of Jesus Christ are guaranteed a permanent place in God's eternal kingdom. When Jesus says they shall, they shall go out no more, He's probably alluding to the practice of the Philadelphians living outside the city every time an earthquake came. Every time they saw destruction, they would wait out those aftershocks and they'd go live in huts. They'd go live in tents away from the city walls. They lived in these temporary structures away from the safety of the city anytime that earthquake hit and they would wait until after all, all the aftershocks had finished. The believer's place in heaven will be in the city with God and they will not be shut out or have to go out anymore. But finally, Jesus gives the believers in Philadelphia and believers today a threefold assurance of our identification with God Himself. In our security in Him, He identifies who we are. And He says, first of all, that they will have the name of God written on them. To have the name of God written on something, it indicates it belongs to God. The first thing Jesus says that He will write it that he will write on them is, I will write on him the name of my God. When I was a kid, I had a lot of uh, Star Wars action figures. My, my brother and I collected all these um, Star Wars stories. We had all these, we had boxes and boxes of spaceships and planets and, and, and probably a hundred different action figures. But what we did with every single one of those action figures, every single one, just like Andy did, we would put on the bottom of their feet, we would inscribe our name in permanent marker. I would put J-N and my brother, would, my brother Andy would put A-N. Our initials would go on each of those little action figures indicating this is mine. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I had a friend over at my house and, um, and I had uh, gone into the other room and when I came back, my friend was rushing out the door. He, he said, I've got, I got to go home. Something came up. I have to leave right now. And I noticed that his socks were, were bulging. And sticking out of those socks were the figures that I had collected over the years. Uh, he had taken as many as he could stuff into his, his, his uh, uh, tube socks and, and, he, and he ran home with all of my toys. Maybe I wasn't 12, maybe I was 10. Or maybe I was 15 and still playing with them. Who knows? <laughs> and so I went to my mom and we had a parental intervention. We went down to my friend's house 
And my mom talked to his dad, and, and my friend was kind of cowering in the corner, looking ashamed. And he says, no, these are all mine. I, I, I got these for Christmas, and I bought these with my own money. And I said, well, there's a way that we can test that. What, what's on their feet? And, and we looked at every single one of those action figures, and sure enough, there were my initials identifying that this was mine. That one belonged to me. In a similar way, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, the name of my God will be inscribed on you. This one belongs to me. The second thing that's inscribed on on each one of them is the name of the city of God. Uh, This signifies citizenship. Uh, Angie and I are um, getting ready to go on our sabbatical and and Angie's passport just came in. Uh, Mine uh, I got a couple of years ago, and, and uh, I went to buy a plane ticket the other day and was really excited because the price had just dropped. And I was like, this is the one I want. And I got all the way into the process, and it says, please enter your passport number. It's like, oh, can't go overseas. You can't go somewhere if you don't have that mark of your identification as an American citizen. And so now that the passports are here, we can start buying those plane tickets, but we're going to carry those passports with us. And when we go somewhere, we have that identification saying, this is who I belong to. This is the city that is mine. And Jesus says, I'm going to identify you with where your citizenship is. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to our God. But thirdly, He also says that you will have My own new name on you. It signifies a more complete understanding of who Jesus is. Our understanding now of the Incarnation is limited. But then, we will see Him and we will know Him face to face. We'll walk with Him. And our identification will be made full in that day when we walk with Him day by day. My friend, there's an incredible security for those who are genuine believers. This isn't a promise for those that are just, just imitating and, 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 and just trying to, to go along with, with, uh, with true believers. Is a promise for true believers, a promise for genuine believers. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can take that away. And the, that security belongs to you. And there's incredible security for genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Because if you have placed your faith in Him, your place in heaven is as sure as the pillars that never fall. His name is written on you. And that identification is noted three times in this passage. Jesus wants you to understand, surely... You are His. He closes his letter with a, a statement once again that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, if you have ears, we all have ears. We can all hear these words. You've all heard what, what Bruce read for us just a few moments ago from this letter to the Philadelphians. And Jesus says this isn't just for the church of Philadelphia, for these people that died centuries ago. This is for you today too. And I want you to evaluate in your own heart how you might be or might not be like the church of the Philadelphians. Take it to heart. Listen to what I have to say. Because I want you to read this letter. I I want you to to hear what I said to them and apply it to you today now. The Spirit testifies to our lives. And He knows us. Jesus knows us. He holds us in His hand. Can He call you faithful? Like the church of Philadelphia, are you truly one of His faithful ones? Or do you just play Christianity out of tradition? 
out of obligation, out of some false hope that it will be enough to save you because you went through all the motions that you thought everyone else was doing. Or are you truly His? Secondly, understand that Jesus will come quickly. His return for those who have persevered could take place at any moment, any day. And so are you holding fast? Are you ready for His return? I've told many of you the story of, of Dan. I won't tell the whole story today, but one of my, the most incredible lessons I learned when I was at Moody Bible Institute was from a, a janitor named Dan. And when Dan trained me, I mean, he just, the guy was, he was intense. And at the end of the day, he asked me, he said, you know, Jeff, do you know why I do all this? I said, Dan, I don't, I don't know. Um, because, I mean, he was intense about everything that he did. But what he said next, he said, I will always remember, especially when it comes to these commands, to remember that Jesus is coming quickly. Dan says, look, I, I don't have the smarts. I, I, I can't study. I can't read very well. I, I could never go to these classes that you guys are going to, but God's made me a janitor. And I'm a janitor at Moody Bible Institute. And if Jesus came back today, I, I would want Him to find me doing what He's called me to do. Are you holding fast to what God's given to you? He's given you an open door for ministry. He's given you an opportunity that perhaps no one else has. He's given you the call to be obedient in the ministry that He has designated for your life and for your ministry. Are you ready for His return? My friends, He will return for all who are His. But if your life is your life reflecting that reality today, today that His name is written on you? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this letter to the church, the Philadelphians, this faithful church. And Father, as we, as we reflect on our own lives, I, I, I pray that each one of us here I pray that each one of us here would reflect on who You are and what Your Word teaches us, on who You say Jesus Christ is and what He came to do for us. Might each one of us evaluate what our relationship is with Him. Are we still in sin? Or are we in Christ? Are we secure in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are we just going through the motions? For those that are genuine believers, I pray that You would Help us to be cognizant each moment, each day of the fact that the return of Your Son Jesus could be at any moment. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to live like those who belong to You. That are citizens of Your kingdom. That will one day walk side by side with Jesus and know Him fully. Might our lives reflect those truths as we walk with You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.